We are continuing our series on key verses in Romans. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. And if you've got a bulletin, you can turn to the back and you've got a study guide. Came across this quote. I thought it was pretty good. All scripture is equally inspired, but it is not all equally inspiring. What's your favorite chapter in the Bible? Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse asked a group of Christian leaders that very question. He wrote 20 men and asked them, if you were shipwrecked on a des deserted island, could not take any book with you, but just one chapter of the Bible, which chapter would you pick? What would you pick? Well, of those 20, five said Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is great. Every theme in the Bible is mentioned, every great theme in the Bible, either mentioned or inferred. Sin, judgment, law, the spirit, righteousness, death, life, resurrection, creation, transformation, prayer, hope, glory. It is such a good, good chapter. Now, you can make the most of this study by being a part of a home Bible study. When you read through Romans chapter 8, somebody just kind of opens with, what do you do when life falls apart? When your reality is not what you envisioned life to be. Maybe it's a marriage that's over. Or a baby that never comes. Maybe it's a diagnosis that's just hard to even accept. Maybe it's relationships that remain strained. What do you do when you're still sitting alone? And you're still sitting alone. What do you do when yet another company calls and said, we decided to go with another potential employer? What do you do when life has fallen apart? We all have those times, and I think based on Romans chapter 8, it's like the Christians in Rome must have been going through similar times. So God inspired Paul to write this chapter to help them and through inspiration us to know what we have in Christ Jesus. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, one of the most incredible chapters of the Bible. Quick review of the book so far. Uh, and again, I'm using this outline by Richard Rogers. He said chapters 1 through 5, you could outline that as accounted righteous, just like Abraham. And this is our justification by faith. And then chapters 6 and 7, we're made righteous. And here he talks about sanctification. And then chapter 8, we are kept righteous. This is our glorification. It's a beautiful thing. Chapter 8 ends, and if you're the kind that likes to mark your Bible, you may have this highlighted or marked. Chapter 8 ends with there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We love that thought, but it ends that way because it begins with the understanding that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's going to be our focus on our lesson this morning. So if you look at your study guide, note the word therefore, because that's how it opens here. Because to appreciate Romans chapter 8... We must face and accept the truth of Romans chapter 7. That's why the word therefore is such a perfect introduction of what's coming next. So if you fill in the blank, the first one is condemnation is a great problem. Condemnation is a great problem. Condemnation is our reality. It's our norm. It, it's our prison because that is life under the law. And Paul has been explaining this in the previous chapters. But there's something about us that no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to shed our need to want to live by the law rather than grace. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, and it was exploring all these new gadgets that help you to do what you ought to do or remind you when you're not doing what you ought to do. 
Let, let me share a few. For instance, there's a new smart utensil. It's called the Happy Fork, the H-A-P-I Fork. And it measures how fast you eat. And if you're eating too fast, it'll tell you to slow down and to chew your food. Not kidding. I looked it up. It's still for sale. A company called Automatic offers a device that will chirp. You're driving down the road when you're speeding, when you're slamming your brakes, or you do anything that your mother would not be pleased. For $50, you can buy a toothbrush that will wirelessly communicate with your phone app about how often, how long you brush your teeth. And it sends these little rewards if you do it well and punishments if you don't. There's webcam, so webcam software. It's called Posture Track that will catch you slouching. A website called Beeminder will tally fines for undesirable behaviors like not flossing or staying up too late. In the article, one device user said that the digital nagging can kind of run your life. Thought, yeah, that's an under, do we really need reminders that we don't measure up? I think we know that already. We know that constant tension of what I know to do, what I want to do, I don't always do. Paul talks so openly about this in chapter 7, and we studied this two weeks ago. But let me remind you of chapter 7, verse 14 and 15. Paul wrote, We all know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. We live in bondage. And the evidence for our condemnation is valid. It's not a matter of are you guilty or should you be condemned. The evidence is there. We are guilty. We should be condemned. But it's not the law's fault. The law is not the problem. One commentary said this, The law can reveal, but it cannot redeem. The law can define, but it cannot deliver. The law condemns failure, but it doesn't reward obedience. And I think we understand this. We don't want the traffic cop to stop us every time we're driving well. If they stop you, it's like, you, what have I done? Have I, was I speeding? Did I run the red light? You know, what did I do wrong? We don't want them to bother us just for doing a good job. The law's job tells you when you messed up. So we're all condemned under the law. But what we need to know then, how do we get free? How do we get out of this prison? And our typical response is a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda. Or I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder tomorrow. And tomorrow we find ourselves in the exact same place. So he ends chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the law can only condemn. Jesus can liberate. So condemnation is a great problem. But freedom is a great promise. And that's what he opens the chapter with. Because we long to be delivered from the spirit of condemnation. We all want to know how to live our life. That we don't fear the judgment. We don't fear dying. That we're ready to meet the Lord. I want to share with you the words of a song. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. The lyrics are old. But actually there's been several modern day artists that have recorded it. And so maybe you've heard it on the radio. Or just maybe you have a copy of it. It's written by Charity Lee's. Bancroft. She lived in the 1800s. She wrote these words in 1863. So the words are older, but it's a timeless truth. Look at verse 1. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. 
whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. We can sing songs about this promise. We can read about this promise in Scripture. But do we claim it? Do we claim it? Do we live in the promise? Because some tend to believe and, and live as if they're constantly losing their salvation and gaining it back. And losing their salvation and gaining it back. And it's sort of like this, this yo-yo kind of effect. But we're not supposed to need to get saved over and over again. Look how the chapter 8 opens. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything about the life of the gospel offer begins right there. In Jesus, there is great freedom. And notice that no, in our English translation, is at the very beginning of the sentence or toward the end of the sentence. In the original language, no is the very first word of that sentence. No. I think it's placed there for a reason. In Jesus Christ, maturity is expected. Correction is expected. Growth is expected. We don't all get it right and we need to continue growing in the Lord. But condemnation is no longer a threat if you're in Jesus Christ. So why do some still live in the bondage of this spirit of condemnation? Why is it that we can't shake it? Look at these very liberating thoughts that God inspired Paul to write. Romans chapter 8. Look at the first four verses with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of the sin of death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Therefore, you notice the next blank, this is a God, not me, freedom. That's the words that Paul used here. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. It's a God, not me kind of freedom. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Paul, remember in chapter 7, he did not say, how do I free myself? Or what's going to free me? Who will free me? Who will rescue me? If we could free ourselves, then what we need is good advice, not good news, not the gospel. But what man cannot do, God accomplished through Jesus Christ and this is, and we've mentioned this a couple of times in our study of Romans, this is what sets Christianity apart from so many other world religions. That their path of salvation involves, you've got to do all this right, or you do enough right to tip the scales that you do more right than wrong, or you hit these steps, then you're in. But that is not the Bible. You may think that way, but you don't get that way of thinking from Scripture. Jesus did not come to be a life coach. Jesus did not come to be a therapist. He came to be a sin offering. God the Son stepped into the arena of time, stepped into space, into our physical be being, 
and met all the requirements of the law for us and then went to the cross and took our condemnation with him, the one that we deserved, and the result of his perfect obedience, we get deliverance. I remind you of Romans 3, 23 and 24. We've been studying this and referring to it several times. But it's something we need to know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, this is not a God's part, man's part plan for freedom. Because as long as salvation depends on you, you're going to take credit for it. That's the way we are. That's our pride. And as long as our salvation depends on us, then we're always going to doubt because we never think we can do enough or that we're never good enough, that we don't please God. But the gospel is not God's way of offering to improve your grades. The gospel is saying Jesus is your report card. He's your answer. He's your salvation. He's the perfection that you could never be. Jesus is not contributing to your freedom. He's paying for it. Remember the lines of the old song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The English Standard Version renders verse 3, he condemns sin in the flesh. Same word Paul used earlier. In Christ, God has condemned the very thing that would have condemned all of us. Let me share verse 2 of this song, Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. Who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. How great is the love of God. And the mercy. And the wisdom of God. And this freedom is to always be realized, not just read about, not just sung about, but, but realized and lived in. Well, the next blank, this is the, the spirit, not the law, freedom. So we are so accustomed to the realm of the law that we tend to kind of revert back to that way of thinking and want to stay saved by our merits of being able to keep the law. But then again, we've been talking about this, and Paul writes it over and over again. The law was never intended to make us free. It cannot make us free. Kevin Liebman wrote about a guy in his book, A New You by Friday. Wayne Carlson's his name. Soon after his 18th birthday, stole a car, was convicted, one-year sentence in the Saskatchewan Prince Albert Penitentiary. But instead of just saying, okay, I did it, I'm guilty, I'm just going to serve my sentence and get out in a year, move on with my life, he was determined to break out, and he did. But he was quickly captured and put back into prison. But that fueled not a determination to do better and to just serve out his sentence. That fueled a determination to break out again and again and again. He eventually set the North American record for 13 prison escapes, and he stretched that one-year sentence into more than three decades Sinful persistence fosters slow learning and hard lessons. When I read that story, I thought maybe there's a little Wayne Carlson in all of us. Sometimes we can think just like that. Let me remind you of what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? I'm reading that out of the NIV, but notice the English Standard Version, how it renders that last line. Have you begun by the Spirit? Or are you now being perfected by the flesh? Some versions say by means of the flesh. So when you read flesh in your Bibles, don't think it always means sin. Because right here, what he's saying, Paul is talking about these people walking in the flesh, meaning it's their attempt to keep the law to stay saved. So even after we understand we're saved by grace, then we want to stay saved, again, by our own good works. So the question comes up, are you saying that sin doesn't matter once we get saved? Not at all. But that question is always going to come up when we understand and teach the gospel, when it's properly proclaimed. That's why I think Paul went to great lengths at the opening of this letter to explain what the gospel was and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Look again at Romans 8 verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to, who do not live according to the simple nature, but according to the Spirit. And again, the ES English Standard Version again uses the word flesh there. But for those of us in Christ, His righteousness is given. God has sent His His Spirit to write His law on our hearts, and the result of that is a life that is free and able to enjoy that freedom. In that life of freedom, then we are motivated to want to increase in our own holiness. Because what we know is that love produces the kind of willful obedience that law never could. So when we get that, we're going to obey even more. And we'll sin even less. But our motivation is from love, not trying to keep the law. See, it's not just a freedom from death. It's a freedom for life. And that's the next blank. It's a now, not later, freedom. There is now no condemnation. He's not writing about a possible future. He's talking about now, a current reality. Your condemnation has already been condemned. You are set free. But here's what we know, and here's what we experience. The accuser is going to do everything he can to claim your freedom, to mess with your mind. He assaults your memories and your emotions. Now, he cannot overturn your, ver your verdict. You can walk away from God anytime you want to. He cannot steal that from you. But what he can do is rob your confidence in prayer. Rob your boldness to walk by faith. Rob your willingness to grow in holiness. Your assurance of glory. Don't let Satan convince you that you still own something that Jesus has taken away. That you still owe a debt that Jesus has already paid for. All of it. I know you're saying or thinking... It sounds like I'm saying that I can be sure of my salvation. That's exactly what Scripture is teaching us here. Look at verse 3 of this song again, Before the throne of God above. Behold Him there is the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I Am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. 
My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in according with the riches of God's grace. Today's English version renders that last line, how great is the grace of God. I love that. How great is the grace of God. Which brings me to the conclusion, no condemnation is a great foundation. You need to get this. This is kind of a starting point. This is foundational. When you realize the impossibility of condemnation, you are free in Christ. Now again, you can walk away anytime you want. You can stop believing. You can turn your back on Christ. But in Christ, you are free. And when you realize the impossibility of condemnation, you're not going to give up the pursuit of holiness. You're going to want to be more and more holy and please God. You're going to interpret trials not as punishment. But you're going to see God's hand in everything. You're not going to be afraid to take anything to God. Because you're taking everything to God. You're just that close. You're not going to fear that final lap, judgment, death. You long for His appearing. You're ready to see Jesus. In his book, Doubt, Curtis Hudson shared a story, an old story, about a little fellow standing by the side of the road. A man came by who was lost. And so he asked the little boy, he says, hey, fella, how do you get to town? The boy said, I don't know. He said, well, where's Route 20? He said, I don't know. Well, what's the name of this road? I don't know. He said, where does it go? He said, well, I don't know. He said, boy, you don't know anything, do you? And the little boy said, I know I ain't lost. <laughs> Until you know, you ain't lost. You're not going to help anybody else be saved. That you know the security of your salvation. That there is no condemnation. That this freedom is a promise that you claim now. That you are free in Christ. All God has done, all that He has done, is useless unless you're in Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. It's throughout the text. In Christ Jesus. That's why when we gather for worship, we end with an invitation for you to become one with Jesus. Get in Christ Jesus. That you accept He is the Son of God and you confess your faith. You're washed clean in baptism as you repent of your sins and He makes you that new creation, gives you the gift of His Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. That is your obeying the gospel. And that's why we do that every time because all that God has done for you on the cross matters not until you say, I believe, and you accept. And you let Him make you that new creation, that child of His. So that's our invitation. If you're ready to confess and have your sins washed away, or if we can just pray for you, maybe to accept the truth of this teaching, or whatever your struggle may be, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?